This is Cardinal Francis George, and I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Father Barron will challenge us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the One who is love. The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents the Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, we find ourselves once again reading from the remarkable 13th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Last week we looked at the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Well, this week the Church gives us four more brief parables from the Lord. I told you last week that a parable is by its nature a sort of disturbing story. It tends to turn around our expectations, turn things upside down, and it keeps generating meaning over time. That's a wonderful thing about parables. You read them once and you get one idea from it. You might read it the next year and a whole other angle inside of it emerges. What I want to do today is not just pick out one of them, but talk briefly about these four parables that Jesus tells. Because each one says something important about the reign of God, the kingdom of God. Here's the first one. The Lord says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field, which a person finds and hides again, and out of joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know what's wonderful? In the literature of the world, you'll often find these stories of buried treasure. Do you ever wonder where these came from? Why people keep telling stories about buried treasure? Well, they were relatively common in the ancient world, especially, by the way, in Palestine, in Jesus' country. Let's say there was a, an army, an invading army coming, maybe a band of marauders, maybe there were bandits sweeping through an area. In the time before banks and insurance and so on, what people did is they would take to the hills. They'd flee. But before they fled, they would bury their valuables. Now, when you think about it, it's not a bad way to protect your goods. You know, you bury them, and how would the invaders know where they were? Now, what would happen? Well, often people would flee. They'd never come back. They would be killed, or they would relocate. They'd come back to some other town. The result was there was a fair amount of this buried treasure around Palestine. Now, flash forward to a year later, ten years later, maybe even a century later. A farmer has bought that field, and he's plowing. In the course of plowing, he finds this buried treasure. Wasn't expecting it. It comes as a bolt out of the blue, but he finds it, and it makes him rich. You can see why people love to tell stories about this. It's almost like, like Blackbeard the pirate, you know, who bury his treasure, then, then be killed, and many years later someone finding it. It's the same idea. Why is this like the kingdom of God? Sometimes God's love, God's presence, God's reign, is come upon that way. It's come upon as a great surprise. When you were busy doing something else, suddenly... God's love and God's life breaks into your experience. You read the lives of the saints, often it happened that way with the great saints. They were moving in this direction and suddenly they are turned around. Think of 
Saul on the road to Tarsus is the best example, but in the lives of lots of the saints, the surprising quality of the kingdom. I always think of John Lennon's great line, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. You're doing this, and then suddenly life, in the grand sense, life with a capital L, happens to you. It breaks in on you. The second parable throws light on another aspect of the kingdom. Listen. The Lord says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he finds a pearl of great price, he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. Now, in the ancient world, pearls were extremely precious, extremely expensive things. Julius Caesar paid in the millions of dollars, and of course in the ancient world, we're talking astronomical sum of money for a few fine pearls. Think of the difficulty involved in finding them. So divers had to go down, 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 without the equipment we have today, of course, go down and find the oysters, bring them up, and then rare would be that really fine, perfectly formed pearl. The Lord says the kingdom is like a merchant searching for these fine pearls. In the first parable, the kingdom was chanced upon. It's like a treasure buried that you happen to find by chance, by luck. Now here's the other side. Sometimes the kingdom of God is something that you search for diligently. Over time, painfully. Think of this merchant for many, many years looking, looking, looking for that great pearl. Think of the diver going down day after day with all the difficulty involved, looking, looking for that one fine pearl. You know what comes to mind here is um, in that third Indiana Jones movie, remember? The father of Indiana Jones, played by Sean Connery, is this man who just looked his whole life for the Holy Grail. It became his obsession. He read about it. He thought about it. He looked for it. He traveled the world. He went through all kinds of dangers. That became his obsession, finding the Holy Grail. Think of young St. Augustine. Looking, looking, searching for the truth, which brought him through Manichaeism, brought him to Platonic philosophy, and then finally, after a long process, brought him to his Christian faith. But Augustine looked and searched painfully over many years. Or think of Thomas Merton, in many ways the Augustine of the 20th century. Merton, that young seeker, looking, first of all, in the pleasures of the secular world, and then looking in all kinds of different religions and spiritualities, and finally finding what he was looking for when he became a Trappist monk in 1941. Searchers, questers, those who look painfully and over a long haul. Here's a side of it, too, which I love. A pearl, the biologists tell us, is formed because an irritant gets into the oyster. You know, a piece of, of dirt or another animal or something, an irritant gets in. And what the oyster does is it creates this protective shell around the irritant. That's the pearl. These people who are searching, searching for truth, 
searching for salvation. It's as though there's an irritant in them that spurs them on, keeps them looking. Well, sometimes the kingdom of God is like that. And after a long period, you find what you want. Now, what do these two stories have in common? The way they end. Listen, Christians, no matter how you find the kingdom of God, whether it comes to you as a bolt out of the blue, as a gift, as a grace, or whether you find it after a long and diligent search, you must sell everything you have and buy it. The man that finds the buried treasure sells his whole life and buys that field. The man who finds the pearl of great price sells everything he owns and buys that pearl. You don't mess around when God discovers you or you discover God. Rather, you abandon all of your preoccupations. Whatever was put first in your life must be put away, and God and his kingdom must become first. This is that wonderful and challenging demand of the gospel. The demand of the gospel. You can't leave it second, third, or fourth in your life. It must be first. What's the third story? The Lord says, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, which collects fish of every kind. When it's full, they haul it ashore and sit down and put what is good into buckets. What is bad, they throw away. This story, I would submit, is a bit more sobering. The image is one that Jesus' listeners would be familiar with, these fishermen around the Sea of Galilee. A couple of boats would go out. There'd be this kind of dragnet in between the two, and the boats then would row in, and with the dragnet, they would just take in whatever they found. Well, they'd find some fish, yeah, fish good for eating, and they'd find everything else, all kinds of non-edible creatures. They'd probably find stones and seaweed and all kinds of other things that they couldn't use. Then they would sit with this great net, and they'd sort it out. Put the good over here, put the bad over there. So, says Jesus, is the kingdom of heaven. Look, Christians, in the first two parables, either it comes upon us as a gift, as a grace, or we find it after long search. In this third story, Jesus tells this sobering truth that at the end, at the end of the day, the kingdom of God will find us. God's reign is coming. God's order is coming. Do we have time to adjust to it? Yes, yes, time of grace to adjust to it, to order our lives in accord with it. Yes, indeed. But listen, finally, it's coming, whether we like it or not. Finally, it's coming, whether we're ready for it or not. So God finally will gather us all in, saints and sinners alike. This is such a familiar theme in the New Testament. The Lord's saying, get ready. Get ready. Don't put it off until the last minute, because the Lord's kingdom is coming for you. The eschatological roundup. Well, 
Be ready for it. Final image. The Lord says, Every scribe who's been instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings from his storeroom both the new and the old. That's terrific. It's a great image. I've used it a lot over the years in different settings. The scribe learned in the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who knows how to bring out both the old and the new. Jesus knew that his preaching, his ministry, were largely in continuity with the great tradition that came before him. Jesus loved the Hebrew scriptures. He loved the prophets and the law. Remember he said, I've come not to abolish the law and prophets. I've come to fulfill them. He wasn't opposed to his tradition, knocking down everything old. No, no, he reverenced what came before him. He reverenced the tradition from which he came. At the same time, Jesus knew that his preaching, his life, his ministry did represent something new, a decisive breakthrough. Behold, I make all things new, says the Lord in the book of Revelation. There's something novel, surprising about Jesus. Good. To read his ministry right is to read it as both old and new, both in continuity with what came before and something surprising. So, Christians, the church, do we reverence things that are old? Yes, all our traditions, our doctrines, our architecture, our poetry. I love old things. A lot of my job is teaching students to revere the tradition of the church. But at the same time, I realize the Holy Spirit's alive in the church. Holy Spirit didn't die in the year one, but the Holy Spirit's alive, moving, active. Vatican II said to read the signs of the times. So the scribe learned in the kingdom of heaven, loves things both old and new. Don't fall into the trap of reverencing exclusively the old or exclusively the new. But be open to how God's kingdom has operated throughout history in all kinds of ways, both old and surprising. God bless. I hope that you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George. God bless you. To purchase copies of The Word on Fire, call 847-297-4360.